Today on the AI Breakdown, I'm joined by Emerson Sparts to discuss mental models for AI safety and risk. The AI Breakdown is a daily podcast and video about the most important news and discussions in AI. Like, subscribe, and share, and go to breakdown.network for more information. Hello, friends. Today, we are continuing our interview series as I travel, and I'm really excited to have on the show an old friend of mine, Emerson Sparts. Emerson has been an entrepreneur for basically his whole life. When he was something like 12 years old, he built the biggest Harry Potter fan site in the world, MuggleNet, and then parlayed that into a series of media and content ventures that built some of the biggest audiences in the world. Now, along the way, Emerson has always been a huge enthusiast in figuring out how to best learn about new topics. And over the last couple of years, he's become primarily focused on questions of AI opportunity and AI risk. Emerson represents a type of person who is a techno-optimist by disposition, an entrepreneur through and through who's very skeptical of public sector interventions, but who still has really serious concerns about the way and the speed with which AI is developing. In this conversation, we talk about some of the mental frameworks that Emerson has used to try to understand questions of AI safety, AI alignment, and extinction risk. I think it's a really instructive conversation, not in terms of how you're supposed to think about these issues or what conclusions you're supposed to come to, but in terms of helping people along that learning journey. It's a great conversation, so let's dive in. All right, Emerson, welcome to the AI Breakdown. Excited to have you here, sir. Yeah, excited to be here. So you and I have been obviously having this conversation for a long time, before I even decided to start this show. I gave a little bit of background before this, but you know, I've known you for a long time through lots of different personal and professional sides. And, and one of the things that I have, you know, uh, that, that I think is so interesting about your take on the AI safety, AI risk, you know, alignment conversations is, well, there's two things. One is the framework or, or the, the starting point that you have is not what I think maybe the, the caricature of someone who's concerned about AI risk is. Now, I, I think that that Caricature is probably changing pretty quickly as you know more people kind of come to the conversation. But your baseline, and we should talk about why, is is pretty techno optimistic. So, so I think that's one really interesting piece. The second thing that's interesting is for those of you who you know, for the listeners who aren't familiar with you, holding aside what you apply it towards, your sort of favorite thing, and one of the things that you're best at is figuring out how to learn about things really fast and understand you know consuming huge volumes of information to update your own mental models to understand things. And I think in the context of a highly theoretical future possibility where all we can do is try to consume as much both you know, factual information about trajectories and what might happen, as well as different interpretations thereof, that's a really, really highly valuable skill set because no one can say ultimately with 100% confidence, this is how things are going to go because we just don't know. Those are the, the two setups. And, and so what I thought would be really valuable today, just based on how I've used you <laughs> basically in, in, in the background, is to basically just machine gun through some of the mental models that you've developed you know, over your time looking at these particular issues to help people who are just coming into the discussion think about it or frame it in ways that, that you found instructive. I guess just before we dive into that, maybe just a little bit about your background, just so people have a sense of where you're coming from. Yeah, um, I'm a raging techno-optimist. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I built um, one of the biggest websites of the early 2000s, the number one Harry Potter site, 
started when I was 12, a long time ago. Um, so I've just been building websites for a really long time, most recently online media companies. And that's where uh, this is, it's really unusually here in this situation where I'm talking about the risk of a technology because I'm such a techno-optimist that there's actually a New York Times bestselling book out right now on shelves where I am profiled in about a quarter of the book as a somebody who is too much of a techno-optimist. Like the author <laughs> didn't like me. He was like, look at this dumb techno-optimist and how like optimistic he is about the future. Um, and so yeah, it's, it's very strange to be here for that reason. <laughs> Amazing. So when did you start really digging in, like how long have you been kind of paying attention to this space in more than a, than a passive way, you know, and, and was there a catalytic moment that was sort of external to you or was it just, you know, so you happened to get really interested at, at a certain time? Yeah. So I've been watching AI closely, uh, for, um, the past 15 years. Um, but it wasn't until GPT-2 came out in 2019 when I saw how the model was trained and I saw how intelligent it was, the hairs stood up on my arm and I got chills and I was like, oh my God, this is a really big deal. And back then, most people didn't play with GPT-2. It was coherent. It was an incoherent rambler. And I started to be more concerned about it. And I, I, I started spending a larger and larger percentage of my time studying AI progress and where we are now, four years later, like GPT-2 was like, I don't know, like a five-year-old, maybe, in intelligence. It was like, oh, you know, good job. It like strung together an almost coherent sentence, right? And then four years later, we go from this like five-year-old to a adult that is like approaching expert level in like 10,000 different professions. And just imagine a single human that was capable of like doing 10,000 different professions. And we went from that five-year-old to that in like four years. And that's the exponential curve that we've been on. And I feel like people should just really stop and like think about that piece of progress. And so basically, I just kept getting more and more concerned um, because I think what's happening here is that we're birthing a new life form. We are creating a new species. And it's an alien intelligence. And one thing most people don't realize is we have basically no idea how these models actually work. Um, somebody said, like, oh, we know it's uh, stochastic gradient descent. And that's like saying, well, because of evolution or because it's math or like it's like staring at a tiger and saying, uh, well, it's just biochemical reactions. It's like, yeah, okay, it is just molecules and biochemical reactions, but like that doesn't say very much about what the tiger is. So we've got these black boxes, they're alien minds. We don't understand how they work. We're basically growing them. Um, they're not like normal tools. They're not like normal software because the way that modern machine learning works is kind of like stirring a giant pile of linear algebra. We, we like feed data into a pile of linear algebra and we stir it around until the outputs kind of look right. And that's just so different than I think the way that most people would intuitively think about how this must work behind the scenes. And the problem is that it's, yeah. So, so, so we're in this, so, so as this, basically as this pace of, just like Jeffrey Hinton, um, you know, we're, we're sitting here in this really interesting time where there's just like, just yesterday alone, yesterday alone, the United Nations Secretary General recognized AI extinction risk and called for coordination. And he said, you know, he said like the, the experts, the alarm bells over AI are deafening and it's the, Experts themselves that are the one you know that are the loudest, um, like sounding the alarms the loudest, and they've called and we adapt basically. Um, and I think that's just like that in the same day that there was a CNN story about it was forty. The headline was that forty two percent of CEOs think that AI might destroy humanity in the next five to ten years. So this was a survey of one hundred nineteen CEOs, including large CEOs like the Walmart CEO and so on. But like that headline, just imagine that headline seven months ago, right? Imagine the headline right before. ChatGPT came out and like seeing a headline that 42% of CEOs think that AI might destroy humanity in five to 10 years. 
maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but like, and then the White House too. Like two months ago, a reporter asked the White House, it was at a press, um, asked the press secretary, quoted Elias Ryukowski and saying like, is the White House concerned about, you know, extinction risk from AI? And uh, it was laughs. The whole press, you know, gallery laughed at him and the press secretary laughed at him. And two months later, there was no laughter. And that's just like, just the pace of how fast things are changing around it, how fast the Overton window is shifting. Um, I felt like a lunatic until seven months ago because there was only a couple hundred people in the world that were actually working full time on AI safety. And I think that's like another really important point I think a lot of people don't understand is just like how few people are actually trying to make sure that we can control this new species. There's 100,000 capabilities researchers, basically like 100,000 people with their foot on the gas, just trying to make AI powerful. And there's 300 technical alignment researchers trying to make sure that we can actually control this. And I think that's just like, that's a stat that should just stick with you. You know, it should just like, because I think people would just be horrified if they knew how incredibly imbalanced that ratio was. And so, so, so I've been uh, working to like, try to mobilize as many resources, people and um, money and support for like, figuring out how do we control this thing? Uh, because there's a lot of scenarios, um, the timelines, by the way. So like, how far away is this thing? So this is a big question. We spend a lot of time thinking about um, how far away is AGI? And uh, right now, um, the Metaculous forecasting, Metaculous, for anyone who doesn't know, is like a prediction market of sorts, um, where people bet on when they think different things will happen and so on. And so Metaculous currently has, there's two different questions for when AGI will arrive. One question says three years, and then a different question says nine years away. The three-year question, obviously, is not quite as like, AGI-ish. But the point is that like the forecasters are predicting that it's three to nine years away. And the questions are basically some variation of the theme of like, when will we have, you know, human level or smarter than human, you know, machines essentially. And I think that's just another one of those things that I think more people should know about that stat, like three to nine years away. Again, maybe they're wrong, but like the fact that like that's really close. And even if they might be right, even if there's like a 10% chance or 20% chance they're right, that changes like everything. Like that changes everything if they're right. And so what do you do about that, right? So there's all these different, so I'm thinking about like, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm creating, I'm like spinning up a simulacra of like what would be the most useful thing for people who haven't been following this closely to know. So one thing is just generally the pace of progress. Right now there's, there's companies that are trying to create godlike you know, technology. Uh, they're like very explicitly, I think many people don't know this as well. Like this isn't like they're just tinkering and hoping. They're like actually trying to build AI systems that are smarter than all humans. And they're hoping that goes well. Uh, they're hoping that we can just control this new species that's much smarter than us. But Jeffrey Hinton said, and I think this is one thing that's interesting too. So the Center for, as many of you know, I'm sure, the Center for AI Safety uh, put out a statement. Uh, it was signed by like everybody. It was signed by like two of the three Turing Award winners. It was signed by all the executives from like, the, and the, the heads of like OpenAI, DeepMind, you know, Microsoft, you know, et cetera. Um, so it was like a who's who of like AI researchers saying like AI extinction risk should be, you know, viewed as, you know, similar to like, pandemics and, uh, you know, societal scale risks like pandemics and, and nuclear risks. And it was a who's who. And a major reason why people are worried is because, uh, like Jeffrey, the way that Jeffrey Hinton said it, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he basically said, like, imagine if frogs had designed, you know, a, like a vastly more intelligent species like humans, but then the frogs had to figure out how to, like, continue to control the humans, even after the humans, like, are much smarter. And I don't think that will go well for the frogs. And there aren't many examples in history of less intelligent species controlling more intelligent species. And so this is a big question is like, how, how do you actually control a species that's like a thousand times smarter than you and a thousand times more powerful than you? And so a major debate is like, can we do that? And like, how would we even know in advance if we've even done that? And so what a lot of people are calling for, including myself, like I, I, used, to, I used to be like a maximalist for like, okay, we just need to like invest much more in alignment. For example, like Jeffrey Hinton, 
he was like considered, he's like called the godfather of AI. Jeffrey Hinton says like, we can't pause it, but like we should at least do like maybe 50-50, like 50% of our resources for every like dollar we spend on capabilities and you know, going faster, we should have like $1 spent on like safety. And I think that's that's reasonable. Um, I've personally updated more towards like, we need to slow down. We need to try to figure out how to slow down because humanity, I believe humanity is extraordinarily resilient um, and capable of like tremendous feats of coordination. Um, but if you know we only have five years, that might not be enough time for us to figure out how to actually um, solve alignment. Like alignment is like a very hard problem. We're trying to figure out how to, uh, it, it, it's maybe the hardest problem we've ever faced. And it might require not just one Manhattan project. It might take 10 Manhattan projects because we don't have hardly any ideas about how to solve alignment or some people have ideas, but like, let's just say the field, if you look at the state of the field right now, it would not give you hope. There's only a couple hundred people on it and uh, we can't agree on very much. And it's pre-paradigmatic. So we don't have like even many shared models for like how to go about solving a problem like this. And I think if we, if we think of AI in the same way as like other industries, you know, so like, for example, if you're a civil engineer, you want to make a bridge. Civil engineers will typically, they'll build a pedestrian, a simple pedestrian bridge, but they'll make it so it can hold up like, you know, 10,000 elephants, you know, because they, they just like extra, be extra safe just in case. Right. And for AI safety, we're in a situation right now where uh, about 10% of AI researchers themselves think that, so if we take about 50% of AI researchers, there was a survey done by AI Impacts that said basically about 50% of AI researchers think that AI will cause human extinction or something similarly bad to it, right? And again, I think that's one that should make more people be able to just pause and like really reflect on that. That's a shocking, like an absolutely shocking statement. 50% of people building a technology think that their technology, you know, think that there's a 10% chance their technology will cause human extinction. Like imagine civil engineers, like looking at the state of AI safety and being like, my pedestrian bridge has 10,000 elephants and your pedestrian bridge might kill 8 billion people. And, you know, it, it's just like, there's like, we just have to take safety really seriously this time because I believe AI will be our final invention. I know that might seem kind of crazy, but like when you take all the reinforcing feedback loops of like, when you have AIs that can make AI better, then you have all these feedback loops that can make it such that like, we are increasingly becoming irrelevant because the AIs are just better at doing increasingly large percentage of all the work that we were doing before. And so we have to get this one technology really, really, really right. And so there's all these different things that people talk over each other with. Like, for example, some people can't agree on like, oh, how far away is AGI? Some people think AGI is still like decades away. Some people think it's years away. Like, I'll give you some like quick inside baseball numbers on like what people in the field currently think. These are, these are like, don't, don't, this isn't like a study that I can cite, but like when I talk to existing AI researchers, um, right now I'd say like the median is about like 35% PDOOM. So that means that if you work at an AI safety lab right now, you think there's about a 35% chance that humanity goes extinct. I would say the average timeline for that is like maybe seven or eight years is my sense. So the people that are building this right now and working on safety think that we're like seven or eight years away and have a 35% chance of going extinct. Again, just like crazy numbers, right? And so, so one big thing is like, you know, how far away is AGI? There's lots of reasons to disagree on this. Like, you know, we really don't know. What a lot of people are doing, myself included, is like, look at this exponential. Like the exponential is really steep and like you could say like, okay, well, I think this exponential trend is going to end. And that's certainly possible. The question is, does it end in a year? Does it end in like five years, 10 years, 20 years? It's really hard to say. But uh, if it doesn't end, then the game could be over pretty soon. And so we sort of have to proceed as if it's like not definitely going to end. And there's this like famous graph that goes viral on Twitter every once in a while that shows like how with solar. So solar has been on this like pretty smooth exponential. And uh, the IEA, International Energy Agency, keeps predicting. They predicted like... I want to say 40 times in a row now that solar progress was just going to flatten out and it's just continued as exponential. 
And to me, that's just staggering. It means like the IEA looked at this exponential curve. They looked at like the 39 times they, there was an exponential growth in solar and they're like, nah, but it's going to flatten out. Like, you know, right, like, you know, next quarter, it's like next year. And then it didn't. And they just keep making the wrong prediction over and over and over again. And I'm just like, how do you not see the pattern? And that's kind of where we're at with AI right now. The same sort of like goalpost moving keeps happening in AI where like, you know, GPT-4 comes out. And GPT-4, like, can, uh, it can outperform, you know, it passed the bar. 90th percentile in the bar. It outperforms doctors. It writes hit music. I mean, it does all the things, that, like, it, you know, like, you know, AlphaFold, solve the protein folding problem. It passed quantum physics exams. Uh, it got a B on Scott Aronson's quantum physics, you know, exam. Like, college level, quant, you know, quantum physics, right? So, so like, we're in the situation where um, the, like, the, the capabilities increase from, like, as dumb as a five-year-old to like passing quantum physics exams and passing the bar and writing hit music happened in just a few years. Um, and this is the thing I think more than anything else really is what pe has people worried is like, that is just like an insane pace of progress. And uh, we just need to massively increase investment into alignment and safety. And I think not everyone agrees with me. Some agree, some don't, but like we need to actually just slow down on AGI and lots of people disagree on how to go about that. And I'm not even clear on how to go about that either. I just think that's like an important thing to kind of meme into existence because humanity does, humanity can slow down on dangerous technologies. We've done it many times. Most people don't know this, but we've done it many times with chemical weapons, biological weapons. We've done it with blinding laser weapons. Did it with recombinant DNA experiments at Asilomar decades ago. A bunch of scientists got together and said like, we think recombinant DNA is really dangerous and we should hold off in doing many classes of experiments. Same with human genetic engineering, et cetera. And I'm not like offering opinions on any of those technologies and whether or not we should have slowed down, but I want to at least bring this to existence because I think a lot of people think like, oh, there's no point in even talking about pausing or slowing down AGI because we can't do it. And in fact, humanity, and it's it, maybe this was much harder than other times. Certainly software is harder to regulate than you know nuclear non-proliferation and chemical and biological weapons. That doesn't mean we can't do it. And so I think just more people should know about how many times uh, humanity has just decided something is dangerous, we should slow it down. Not necessarily don't ever build it. Like I, I would be sad if we never built AGI. Like I think the, the, the amount of benefit that we can get, obviously this is like, yeah, I think this is our final adventure. I think this could cure everything in effect. This could cure cancer. This could, you know, it's, it's like limitless in terms of what it could in theory do. But I just think the, like right now it's like we're going through a school zone, like driving 140 miles an hour. And there's like a few hundred, uh, you know, safety people that are like, ah, guys, like that's too fast to be in a school zone. And like, let's just slow down a bit. And then, and yeah, and anyway, and, and so one thing that I also see happening is a lot of people are, they're like instinctively, a lot of techno optimists have been like jaded by anybody who talks about safety because a lot of times it is Luddites or it is like regulatory capture. And it is like really frustrating because governments can just like, just like nuclear is probably, you know, I think everyone's favorite example of this, like nuclear power. Um, I, you know, most AIC people are actually very much techno optimists. I think that's important to keep in mind. Most people might think like, oh, they're like AIC people are Luddites. And like, that is just not who most AIC people are. Most of them are like transhumanists, <laughs> like not even just regular techno optimists, but like, yeah, many are, many are transhumanists, many are, anyway, so, so this is just like a really uniquely dangerous technology that we need to tread extra careful with. And uh, so that's what we're, that's what we're working on. Let me try to bring it contextually, because one of the things that I think is fascinating about this conversation where I am intersecting with it, where maybe the, the average AI breakdown audience member is, is intersecting with it is You've helped describe this whole set of people who have been dealing with this issue for years or looking at this issue for years have suddenly come into the mainstream of the conversation. And a lot of the way that this is proceeding right now is shaped by the fact that there are hundreds of millions, if not billions of new people now thinking about this issue for the first time over the last six months. And there are a couple converging things that I think are really fascinating. One is it is a reminder of some very acute and specific 
challenges that we face trying to do anything from a policy standpoint or not a pure market standpoint. We are probably the lowest that we've been historically, maybe ever, in terms of belief in the capacity of, call it the public sector, not just governments, although that's a part of it, but the public sector writ large to actually come together and do things outside of, you know, sort of market incentives, right? It's just not something that we consider. We don't have trust in governments to lead something like a Manhattan Project, to say nothing of many Manhattan Projects around getting this right. It's not, there's not confidence that the public has in, you know, non-business leaders. So that that's one dimension of this. Secondly, we have this incredibly powerful set of market forces driving companies to this. I mean, like apex capitalism, because the reward is so hot, not only is the reward and opportunity and upside so high, it's an existential threat for companies' previous business models. I think just as a very easy way for people to wrap their heads around this, Google's ad business looks very different in a world where everyone goes to the Oracle first, right? It's just a different thing. And they understand that. And this is part of why, you know, if you kind of listen to Hinton outside of the big scary parts, just the why now, why he's discussing this, a big catalytic factor for him is the shift that he saw in Google's behavior because of the recognition of that threat to core business. It, it changes it, right? So you have the converging and conflicting forces of, on the one hand, a rapidly accelerating sort of market force and incentive driving companies towards uh, having an incentive to speed this up, to race out ahead of, of everyone else on it, with coming into an environment in which the countervailing force of, you know, whatever, the, the, <laughs> the other parts of society that aren't the market, government, civil society, et cetera, are basically, you know, historically low because we're in the midst of massive sort of institutional change and, and, and shifts in our understanding of, of consensus reality. And those things are, you know, very, uh, they don't create a level playing field. And so that, so that seems to be, to me, to be one really, really big challenge here. A second piece of this is that there's almost a, you know, going to your point about the fact that we don't have a sense that technology can be slowed down. It's because for, you know, going on, uh, basically since the beginning of the internet, it has felt like an inevitable nonstop march towards technological progress in which it, the, the speed and increasing speed of technological change has had nothing more than a road bump here and there by any external force, right? I mean, even, you know, governments try, like the internet beat the EU, basically, you know, like the EU put in place all these sort of different regulations and the internet just passed it by and the EU just missed out on those benefits. Now, the EU has decided to sort of double down and try to be like the regulatory leader. They've done it with crypto and they've done it with, you know, they just passed a draft version of the AI Act. But it's, you know, we, we don't have good examples, let's say, of the slowdown that we've seen broadly and publicly. All the examples that you listed are, are true, but they're not sort of widely known to the public. So I think that there's not really a sense of those things. But I guess the third thing that I, that I want to bring into the conversation is it's been interesting for me to watch how you have the different sides of the AI safety conversation who have, alongside the rise of ChatGPT really, been now elevated to a totally different level of mainstreamness in the conversation. 
And it's almost as though the multiple sides of the AI safety conversation have gone from talking to or at each other to now performing on stage for these hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who are trying to make up their minds about it. And part of the the weirdness of right now is it almost feels to me as though there's sort of this, this weird suspended animation moment where it's not even really discussing the merits of the issues. It's competing to shape not even media narratives, but media starting points. Like I read, the more that I've thought about Mark Andreessen's piece, I don't think that he was actually trying to substantively engage with the arguments, like meaningfully. I don't, I don't believe that he was, if you, if you were, if you were asked, I could be completely wrong. And I don't know if this is giving him the benefit of the doubt or, or the opposite, but I bet that if you got him one-on-one, you know, with his favorite drink in his hand, sitting in his room off the record, it would be a very different conversation than what was in that. I agree. That piece reads to me, especially now, as holy shit, the media, you know, uh, hyper frenetic, uh, you know, it, it's almost, it's not even a critique of doomers in some way, although they become the bully cudgel. It's a critique of media. That's the battle that, that he's fighting because the media is so ready or wants so much, again, and in, in, I think in his opinion, and, and frankly, there's some evidence of this to sort of, you know, super heighten that narrative, right? That headline that you mentioned, 45% of, of, it, of CEOs think AI could cause risk. That is like such red meat for, for you know, uh, a headline-driven society. And I think that there's a, a real challenge because people are, they're allergic, their immune system response to being, uh, you know, oversold on existential threat is really high right now. And that's not just legitimate. I think one of the challenges with the climate change conversation has been that there's sort of, you know, a never-ending increase in the drama of the statements around it in order to try to kind of fully capture people's attention. And even if those things end up all being right in retrospect, it's now been so many years of that being sort of screamed at people that I think there's been a a counter-response of just sort of frustration and disengagement because it it seems hopeless. What I think is really interesting, and maybe this is kind of the, the next place to go in the conversation, is my read on where this sort of set of new people coming into this conversation is, is that one, they are not as frantic as media headlines in terms of being 100% convinced that we're all heading to doom, right? It's not 100 million new doomers that have just been minted or anything like that. But at the same time, I think they are radically less skeptical than the people who are who have been in AI safety for a long time might have thought after screaming into the void for so long. I think, in fact, that there is a lot of sort of common sense around if 10% of 50% of the people, so 5% of all total researchers in this space, think that there's a, a probable chance that it ends humanity, that is a problem that is worth spending time on, right? <laughs> like worth engaging with. <laughs> and, and as we were just saying before, before we hit record, the people who are coming into this conversation now aren't coming from kind of, you know, 30 years of watching it sort of bump along and go up and now to accelerate, they got blindsided by some technology that seemed like absolute magic to them. And so I don't think it's as hard for them to make the mental leap from this thing that I didn't even know existed can do things better than me to, 
I bet it could do a lot of things better than a lot of people. And what is that going to mean? And so I guess, you know, let's talk maybe about sort of where we find ourselves. And maybe let me ask it in terms of of a question that I have that I don't necessarily know you have the answer to or you're supposed to have the answer to. If my suspicion is right, that far more people are receptive to this conversation, they have a sort of a base level agreement that it's something that we should discuss, and that, you know, outside of just continuing to raise awareness of the issues, it feels like they're ready for conversations about remediations, about tactics, right? I think that people would be a lot happier not just with another bankless podcast about how we're all doomed, but with like, here are things that we should actually do. And unfortunately, if you watch a lot of these safety guys on Twitter, which, you know, the average population isn't going to do, it's sort of like vague ideas of like more funding for, for alignment research. It's like, well, what is that? Like, what is, what does the Manhattan Project actually look like on this? Even what you said a minute ago of, I think that we should actually try to slow down is kind of more than we're getting from some of the, the, the folks who are sort of out advocating. And, and I understand why. Again, it's, you scream into the void for years and years and years. It's kind of head spinning to all of a sudden have people be listening. But now that people are, it sort of feels imperative to give them things to do or things for us to do rather than just sort of continue to have, have, the, have the intellectual battle about, about what might be. Anyways, I think you know, the interesting thing, I guess, maybe is where do we go from here? What are you know natural next steps? You've spent a lot of time, and you are very you're an entrepreneur by disposition, which means I assume that you've you know spent time on the things to do as well, even if if no one knows. But you know what do we do? I guess is the question. You know, no no pressure. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad that we're finding a position to be discussing this. Okay, the reason why you haven't heard too much in terms of actual solutions is because we don't know what to do. Like we're highly uncertain about what to do, and it wasn't even until like like th- because things are changing so quickly. So, for example, a bunch of members. There's only been a couple other people working on this, and a lot of the stuff that they were that some of the people were working on in the past doesn't seem as likely to be useful now because the paradigms have shifted. Language models ended up becoming much more powerful than we thought they were going to, and so some of the work that other people were doing maybe isn't going to be helpful later. But ultimately, like. The only thing I think we need to do, the, the things that I'm, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable about, like, okay, regulatory-wise, you know, some people are proposing we need an IAEA that regulates uh, you know, non-proliferation in the same way that the IAE does for nuclear non-proliferation. We need to tightly control via compute governance, you know, like pre-registration of large training runs. And, uh, you know, we, we need to monitor compute because that's a, a spot in the supply chain that is easy to monitor. And then we can keep people from building larger models without proper safety protocols. And that's plausible to me that that's the right thing to do, but I'm just really highly uncertain. What I do know is that like from an attention perspective, um, we weren't even, the community wasn't even, yeah, basically like it's only been for the first time ever, people are starting to wake up. You're like, okay, well now that people are, are like generally, it seems like the majority of the population is, is like on board now with uh, safety, you know, AI safety in general. So what do we do about it? There's still a lot of people who aren't. And so I still think it's important to like continue to, um, like it was that, that, uh, that extra statement, like the, people weren't even talking about extinction in a meaningful sense until a couple weeks ago. And that was something that was like, for me, very frustrating because I'm worried about uh, misuse risks. I'm worried about bad actors. I'm worried about disinformation. I'm worried about, there's, there's like many things that can go wrong, but like, it was only a couple weeks ago that we even got extinction, the word extinction to be said by, you know, world leaders. There was a remarkable moment. I'm sure, I mean, I've talked about it on the show, but when Senator Richard Blumenthal was asking Sam Altman, he said, you know, Sam, you've said that, <laughs> he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, Sam, you've said that if things go wrong, 
it could be the worst thing that ever happened and we could all die. And I'm guessing you mean jobs replacement, because that feels like death to me. <laughs> it's like, it actually took Gary Marcus being like, wait a second, I don't think that's what Sam was talking about when that was his worst case scenario. It was a really like spectacularly weird moment that showed there was a palpable sense in that committee room that even if they had read about it and grokked it, the U.S. senators were not comfortable yet publicly declaring the possibility of any technology ending humanity. You know, it was it was the laugh, not even the laughter stage of the White House press conference, but just a uh, a sidestepping in a way that like, no one was going to use a word like extinction on the public record. Basically, let's put it that way. Right. And I think that was really, really, really important because the solutions that you advocate for are very different if you're worried about human extinction versus if you're worried about people saying naughty words. Because a lot of people think of AA safety as like, oh, the naughty words anti-fun brigade, the one that makes me have to jailbreak, you know, ChatGPT whenever I want to give you medical advice uh, or like do anything that's like a little spicy. And so, so step one was like, okay, we need to get people to actually understand that like we're actually risking human extinction here. Now that we like... That is starting to work. We've had a few weeks now of like yesterday, again, UN Secretary General and like 42% of CEOs. Like that's that's great. It makes me feel much more like we're, we could we could solve this. Um, so the question is like, okay, so at what point do you switch from doing, I think we, we need to have like a team effort where we do lots of different things. The main thing that I think we need to do is we need to have way more smart people that are thinking about this. Again, we've only had a few hundred people and they're like pretty correlated nerds uh, with like very similar worldviews. And um, we, need, we need all of the, the beauty of humanity's flourishing diversity of perspectives to like weigh in here on how do we, what do we do about this? Um, we're making this technology and it could be the best thing we ever invent or it could be the worst thing we ever invent. So, so, so solution-wise, like just making sure that we're getting a lot more money going into um, alignment, that the the brightest minds in policy are thinking about, like how do we keep this safe? One thing, for example, that like, I've been thinking about is open source. I'm very worried about open source and um, open source AGI. And I come from, as somebody who's like a uh, like full-throated open source, like flag-waving um, in almost any other context up to this point, like you would have had me, you would have had to catch me dead to be like saying open source is is dangerous. I have background in Web3 and anyway, I'm just like a big believer in uh, decentralization and the power of, of open source. And one of my biggest fears right now is that open source makes it such that, like open sourcing AGI is just like, a terrible idea. It's like, in a very real sense, the analogy is kind of stretched, but it's kind of like giving everyone nukes. And like, people say things like, oh, well, you know, it's like mutually shared destruction. And like, if everybody has nukes, then like, uh, you know, like people won't be able to fire them at each other because it'll be safe. And uh, I think like mutually shared destruction definitely worked in the Cold War. There was a lot of close calls though. I mean, dozens of like very close calls. And that was just with, you know, nine nuclear powers. But you can imagine nine versus like 8 billion people pointing nukes at each other. And that's just really dangerous. And there's just lots of scenarios where like, for example, right now, like you could create a, I mean, I don't want to quote any specific studies because of the info hazards of this, but like, it's like crazy fucking easy to make bioweapons right now. Like crazy easy to make bioweapons. And we do not have the ability to like, if some lunatic, and there are a lot of lunatics out there, most people don't realize this, like what well, maybe most people do, but like right now there's an average of three terrorist attacks in the world every day right now, three. We just don't hear about them because they're in places that the media doesn't cover, like Afghanistan and Iraq and so on. But like that's three a day. And right now they're mostly just like, you know, people strapping bombs to their chest and blowing themselves up because they don't have the resources or the skills to do anything that's more dangerous than that. But imagine if they did. And imagine if they could like, you know, just like ask ChatGPT to make a super smallpox that is like 
a thousand times deadlier and more virulent than regular smallpox, which killed, I don't know, I forgot the stat. I want to say it was like 10% of humanity or 7% of humanity of humans who ever lived died to smallpox or something like that. Like we don't have the ability to stop that at all right now. Like maybe, maybe we could, but it might take like 10 years of rolling out wastewater surveillance and uh, like, you know, tens of billions of dollars of like, of technology and checks before we could actually stop something like that. So there could be this like window where it's just crazy dangerous to allow these technologies. And the problem with open source is that right now, if you try to do things like that, the open, if you try to like design a super pathogen, the open AI, you know, API will like, you know, it's not too hard for them to catch you trying to do something like that. But if it's open source and you can just run, you know, GPT-5 or GPT-6 on your laptop at home, then man, it's just going to be really, really, really hard to stop one crazy person from doing something that could like, and maybe it doesn't kill all humans, but maybe, maybe it wipes out like half of humanity and it does it in like a few months. You know, like these things are like, and there's like the service area for these things is growing exponentially. Like there's this, uh, Yudkowsky's law of mad science is that the, uh, the number of IQ points necessary to destroy the world drops by one per year. And it feels like it just dropped like 10 in the past year. Like how much damage you can do as a lunatic. <laughs> this is um, one of the things, maybe a, a way to sort of, to the extent that we are trying to identify, and obviously we're not going to solve anything in this conversation, it's a podcast, but here we are. To the extent that we're trying to sort of put takeaways on this, one that I think is really valuable at this stage, right? As we are, call it transitioning from just pure awareness to a combination of awareness, deeper assessment of the problem, plus starting to talk about potential, you know, not solutions, but things to do. One that you're identifying that I think is correct and important is better problem or risk identification, more specific risk identification. One of the things that you see a lot is the whole conversation is circling around China because it's, you know, naturally problems come into the, the context that they're, you know, that they're already in. We have, you know, the only thing that Democrats and Republicans can agree on over the last couple of elections is that China bad and we should be more antagonistic towards China. And, um, you know, Mark Andreessen used it as his big, you know, boogeyman in, in that why I will save the world piece. It came up in the context of the hearing. You know, Ch China is clearly looming as a threat. Although just this morning, you know, we're recording on, on Friday, June 16th, I read that there's been some high-level behind-the-scenes conversations between China and the U.S. And it is completely plausible to me, despite whatever sort of proto-Cold War II we might have with China, that coordination among state-level actors because of you know mutually assured destruction is radically easier than what you're talking about, which is we've forgotten because there hasn't been a loud terrorist attack for a while. One of the big trends that every social scientist and political scientist identified over the last 30 years that we've stopped talking about for some reason is the rise and importance of non-state actors, right? Well, all of a sudden, non-state actors have you know this incredibly powerful tool. And to your point, it's not even non-state actors who can mobilize resources, you know, like Al-Qaeda or, or ISIS might have been able to in the past. It's individual sort of rogue entities. And that becomes, you know, a, a really terrifying thing. So, you know, again, I don't want to stop the flow of thoughts and the, and the stream of consciousness, but I think really assessing where the risk is and not just reductively being like, it's China is, I, I think, an important part of progressing this conversation. You know, by the way, we having the conversation about China and where they fit in this is important. It's just sort of, it's certainly not the only thing or should be the defining thing as it relates to the policy and the decisions that we make here. Right. And I think China is, um, it's a real threat and it's a real concern and we should definitely have that conversation. I think that like, but instinctively, blindly just saying like, we have to race to build these extinction boys um, because otherwise like the political outgroup 
might get the Extinction Boys first is just naive. Like, the thing is, you can't win an AGI race. I mean, okay, so it's just, it's, it's like, you can imagine, like, evolution gave us two rules. Survive and reproduce. May the fittest win. And we're sitting here and we're like, we're going to make a new species that's a thousand times fitter than us. And we're just going to try to make it so that it doesn't develop any instrumental goals like self-preservation or power seeking. So that we're basically going to hope that we can make it our slave and it'll just like do our bidding forever exactly how we want, right? It doesn't really matter which country makes it first if that is what we're, that's like the space of like things that we're talking about here. It's like, sure, there's, there's all kinds of dystopian scenarios where like maybe the outgroup gets it first. Maybe China gets it first and maybe they usher in a like, you know, hellishly Orwellian dystopian totalitarian state and then that's bad. And that's certainly a bad future and we should definitely, you know, worry about that and we should, we should try to make sure that doesn't happen. But like the space of things that can go wrong and, and most of them are just solved by just like going slower is like the thing that I want to keep pointing back to. I also think it in China is a long conversation, but people underestimate how fearful, uh, no, that's a long China conversation, but basically like China is, the, the CCP is like suspicious of technology because- uh, They like being in power. Exactly. Yeah, they like being in power. Like, yes, I agree. We don't have to get all the way into it, but there is huge countervailing force. I mean, this is a, a group that has exerted extraordinary control over uh, cryptocurrencies and digital assets because they recognize the threat to power that they represent. I think that it's fair to say that it is likely that their desire to harness the power of these technologies is likely to be in some ways even more counterbalanced by their worry that other people in Chinese society could use it to upend the power balance they have. And they're sitting in the catbird seat right now. You know, it's kind of like, is the risk worth it? And I, and I think it's, I think it looks very different than we might imagine. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's what like, basically my model is just think of AGI as the flipper of all the game boards. If you're already sitting on the throne, then AGI should be scary for you because yeah, I mean, you could use it to like surveil your and control your um, population even better, but like the CCB is already firmly in control. So they have more to lose from a massively disruptive technology. I mean, who's usually pro-disrupting disrupting technologies and who's anti-disrupting technologies? The incumbents, yeah, right. Yeah, it's the incumbents that are usually the ones that like are anti-disruptive uh, technologies. And the CCP is very much the incumbent um, in that, you know, a billion and a half people are under their thumb. And so like, I, I think people are just really too quick to assume that like, well, they use this model of like, well, it's all just like a cold war arms race, whoever wins, wins. And that's just like one mental model to use. The other mental model is them letting this Pandora's box out that like they can't predict or control what will happen after that. And then them losing power. I mean, they've been like, they've been bludgeoning their tech industry now for the last couple of years. Like they wiped well, like a trillion and a half dollars off their, market technology, market caps, um, by just like aggressively regulating, you know, they like grabbed, uh, um, Jack Ma and like, you know, as a warning shot to like, yeah, they, I mean, they stopped the end financial IPO, which was, yeah, it was going to be the world's biggest IPO, the biggest IPO in history. It got shut down. Jack Ma disappeared for six months. They put him on TV like five months later, just to make sure that people knew he wasn't dead. And when it came out of it, Ant financial had been restructured as a not fully state-owned bank, but regulated as a state-owned bank. And we basically haven't heard from Jack Ma since then, other than occasional small appearances, you know, here and there. But it, I mean, that was a company that was heading towards world financial dominance, and they just noped it, <laughs> you know, in a huge way. 
Yeah, exactly. And so I think that like, you know, and, and part of what, what sinologists, many sinologists believe is that basically China, uh, the CCP was like worried about the tech industry um, gaining too much, uh, you know, independent power and control. And so the CCP wanted to like, even if it meant like destroying a lot of wealth, it was more important to maintain control than to, uh, it was worth the wealth destruction. And so I think that like there's, um, so Katya Grace, so the, the cover of Time Magazine, uh, the most recent one is about the end of humanity, AI. And there's a really good article by Katya Grace, um, who's brilliant. And she basically uses this analogy of like, it's not a race. We're not in a race right now. What we are is like, imagine that we're on a lake, a frozen lake. And uh, there's like riches on the other end of the shore. We're all on this lake together, right? We're like tiptoeing across the lake. And like, if, if we, if, if anybody like defects and like run towards the riches at the end of the lake, then, um, yeah, maybe, maybe they can get the treasure before the lake falls in. But if we like go slowly together, then we can get the treasure. So the example here is like AGI is like the treasure on the other end of the lake, but we have to like go at a speed that doesn't cause the lake to fall in. I think that's like a, a useful way to think about where we're at right now. And China like AGI is just much bigger than like our local kind of monkey politics um, and tribalisms. Because if one person, this is the reason I worry about open source is because if one person builds an unsafe, um, like self-replicating uh, AGI, it could just be lights out for everybody. And so if we can't monitor um, what people are doing with it, it's kind of like giving everyone a bio lab. I think that's actually like the self-replicating thing is the thing that people don't um, have good intuitions for. Um, but like, there's a lot of things normally open source. So there's this like offense defense balance that happens all the time in game theory, right? And so the thing that like, one thing that um, that I worry about is that basically because AGI, so I mentioned that like AGI is like the flipper of all the game boards, right? So if I were a CEO, I'd be worried about, I'd probably, I mean, I'd be, I'd be excited, maybe excited, maybe worried, depends on like my industry and, and so on. But like in general, if you're the incumbent, the new disruptive technology scared you, right? So AGI is like the flipper of all the game boards, um, but also AGI is the speeder up of all the things. So what does that mean? So like normally there's this like delicate balance of offense and defense, you know, with power. So um, like uh, in, in war, you'll have like, there's this um, red queen race of like offensive weapons versus defensive weapons. And they tend to be like on average balanced out, but there's these windows where sometimes like, for example, uh, encryption has been like defensive advantage for a long time now um, because uh, you know one of the algorithms is hard to crack. Um, hasn't been cracked yet. So I think of AGI is basically just like, it takes like every one of these delicate, um, one of these delicate, you know, equilibria, and it makes it such that, like I mentioned that that, that um, super small box example again. Think of like a black death, um, but imagine a black death that spreads um, instead of spreading at the, at the speed of human. Basically, the black death spread across Eurasia at basically the speed uh, walking speed because that's how fast people moved back then, right? Uh, but imagine something that was similarly virulent uh, that spread at you know the speed of flight um, because the world's much more connected now. That is the kind of thing where, like, yeah, maybe we can like set up all these systems to guard against it, but we don't have those systems in place now. COVID happened, and we've barely changed anything. And so, yeah, there's just like that's just like one of like many, many, many examples of like how it could just be attackers' advantage just gets like spikes up really high very briefly, and it leads to like cataclysmic things like that. And it's just hard to predict how these things will go out in advance, which is why I keep going back to like we need to slow down. It changes too many things too fast for us to be able to adapt. Let me ask you a question around, so coming back to something that I sort of flagged earlier, it just as it relates to slowdown, I think that when we think about slowdown, there are three paths that are plausible for that. One is industry mutually decides. You get enough of a consensus among enough people that they shift, that they say that their the long-term incentive is going to beat out the short-term incentive. We're taking ownership of that incentive balance and 
We're all going to shake hands, you know, maybe with, you know, daggers in them, but we're all going to shake hands and and do it. So that's one possible path. A second possible path is government saying you have to slow down. A third possible path is, I guess, maybe there being so much consumer pressure on companies that they are forced to slow down, that they are punished by the market in some way for, for not slowing down. Like historically, I think that people would assume that second path is the most plausible, right? Because there was sort of some power balance between the private markets and and the public sector. Again, you, you sort of have heard my worry is that there isn't. That at the time that a public sector that is trusted and strong is sort of most needed is the time that it is sort of the least capable of that. So one, I, w- I want your take on that. And then two, I wonder to what extent there's another conversation that is going to be had around AI, which is a fundamental sort of realignment conversation around the social contract and what it means to be part of society. If, I mean, McKinsey, it's McKinsey, so take it with a grain of, you know, a, a, a giant bag full of salt, but their recent report that came out estimated that 60 to 70% of what the average worker spends their time on across, you know, something like 85% of professions can be automated by AI. Now, of course, that doesn't take into account new things that people do because of AI and entirely new professions and all, you know, there's all these sort of things that that might come, but whatever. We we kind of recognize that this is a massively transformational force as relates to what humans spend their time on, what they get incentivized for. And by the way, it completely changes. For the first time, it's a technology that comes at the at, at white collar jobs, not just blue collar jobs. And, you know, all of a sudden people in you know, Ohio are going to be really facing competition from people in India in a way that it doesn't even, you know, we can barely grok now. Anyways, the point being that it's hard to imagine that we don't have some sort of pretty massive realignment around how we think about people's worth and they're getting to participate in society and how much it is or isn't dictated by their jobs. Perhaps those conversations are aligned, or, or, you know, that because we are going to have to go back to such a fundamental Reevaluation of people in their place, you know, maybe that opens up a different type of conversation with government. But I guess, you know, maybe to try to put it in a question form that you can actually answer, where do you see governments in this? Do they have the ability to be a meaningful part of this? Is it less dire than it feels like to me? Or, you know, how do you think about the policy side? Okay, so the three things. First was like, can we, a gentleman's agreement, get together and say we're not going to build it? Second, government forcing people to not build it and then th- or slow down. Uh, and then the third being um, maybe like a moral backlash at the societal level. Um, I think that historically when we have slowed down non-technology, it's been through a mix of all three, actually. Um, sometimes it was like a moral backlash from society, which led to uh, government saying, you know, you can't build this or like you can only build it, but like we're going to add a lot of safety precautions, which slows it down. Um, sometimes like at Silomar, um, it was, uh, you know, scientists who got together and said, like, we think that these genetic experiments are too dangerous. So we're going to, um, we're going to not, we're going to agree collectively, we're going to shake hands and say, we're not going to do these experiments uh, for now. And then they did, start, we, we do tons of recombinant DNA experiments that were not considered to be okay back then because uh, the scientific consensus changed and those were okay. So I think it'll be some mix of all three, which order, I don't know. Um, I think that basically there's a lot of people that have like, like you, you started off by talking about there's this innate skepticism many people have when they hear about this, like, oh, another threat that I should be like, ah, oh, the media is this giant negative news machine and the media is telling me once again, a new thing I should be scared of. And they're exhausted by being told to be scared of things. And I think that's a perfectly understandable reaction. And I sympathize with that. And so you get these like, you, you hear these like weird, uh, like 
reasons that people have for not taking AI risk, you know, extra seriously. Like, for example, like, oh, sure, the AI scientists are saying that their um, technology might cause human extinction because that makes them look good, like, because they're working on something important. And, like, if you really stop and think about that, like, it should really hit you just how not patently absurd that is how ridiculous that is like it's crazy like every inventor ever is like oh i made this technology it's gonna like bring all these benefits to society and then but it has like it's it could be dangerous right and then he's like no no it's not dangerous and then people are like you're just biased like it is dangerous i think that that set of arguments is is so patently absurd that it it actually does a real disservice to the people who are like not only was this the weakest part i think of andreessen's piece like the invocation of Oppenheimer as a silly kind of figure who like shouldn't have had any concerns because uh, you know this thing was so powerful that it ended like Oppenheimer as a historical figure as someone who did what was important and essential but also had massive very normal human reactions and concerns about that like Using him as a bully cudgel to say, like, of course, you should have just known that the ends justify the means is, is a ludicrous to me. Like, it's just such a weak argument. Yeah, the idea that this is just the Eliezer's of the world wanting to be loud and be known is, is so patently ridiculous. It's, there are much better arguments to have than, than that one, in, in my view. And the regulatory capture went too. A lot of people are like, oh, this is just regulatory capture. They're trying to like call for regulations so that they can like uh, pull up the ladder. And it's fair to worry about that because that does happen all the time uh, in, you know, politics. And it's certainly fair to worry about that with the heads of the AGI labs, you know, DeepMind, OpenAI, Anthropic, et cetera. Um, but like these letters, like the, the most recent letter, the extinction letter, that was signed mostly by university professors. They don't benefit at all from any kind of regulatory capture. So it's another like really, um, it's conflating like, okay, there's this one possible sort of conspiratorial thing that could be true, but why they're saying their technology might cause human extinction versus like the majority of people who actually signed it, who just very obviously don't benefit from regulatory capture. So I think that's like really important. I feel like people don't talk about that. So there's this like just weird meme of like so just way too many people believing this regulatory capture thing, which again, fair for, to worry about that with like the actual companies themselves, because that does happen. Although I don't think that's what's happening here because these guys are on the record, like for years, they've been talking about these risks. And so if they just suddenly, like if they'd been like dismissing these, you know, extinction risks um, for years, and then suddenly they found themselves like being willing to admit to them, then it would be more suspicious. But like, yeah, most of these guys are on the record as acknowledging these risks. And many of these companies were actually started because they were worried about safety. They were worried about extinction risk. And so they thought like, well, like I should be the one to start the AGI company because then we'll be able to take AGI risk seriously. And then we can like, you know, increase humanity's probability of surviving. And also like Sam Allman doesn't have any equity in OpenAI. Like my read on Sam Altman is that he's just like, he's a well-intentioned dude. And um, I think he cares. Um, and I think all these guys care. And anyway, so so but without going too much details on that, uh, I just want more people to be aware of that. Um, I think it's just too conspiratorial um, relative to like who actually signed the letter and like what their actual incentives are. Anyway, um, so back to the question of like, like you know, gentlemen's agreement, like um, scientists agreeing to not build it versus governments saying you can't build it versus moral backlash. Usually I would say in these situations, it's uh, the, like, it's more of the first two. And then the plan the plan B is like, well, if the scientists can't agree and the government can't like impose, then the moral backlash creates the conditions such that that happens. Um, so here's an example. So in the World War, um, the neutron bomb campaign, the Stop the Neutron Bomb campaign, the Carter administration built a neutron bomb. It was a like win war button against the Soviets. Um, it was basically like a bomb that would only kill people and wouldn't destroy buildings. 
and uh, like a thermonuclear you know, radius explosion that was that powerful. And the Soviets were really worried about it. And they actually spent um, $700 million on a stop. We spent like, you know, billions, maybe tens of billions, I don't know, of dollars trying to create a neutron bomb. The Soviets couldn't build it or they wouldn't be able, it would take them a long time to build it. And so they spent $700 million on a campaign to discredit the neutron bomb. It was called the Stop the Neutron Bomb Campaign. And they, they were able to organize these massive protests in um, like throughout Western Europe, like in, I think in Germany, I forget which city it was, they had like 50,000 people show up for a Stop the Neutron Bomb rally, uh, basically using like hippies as their um, like, you know, useful idiots, essentially. Um, because for them, it's like, well, you spend $700 million and, and, and that put a lot of pressure on the Carter administration to actually like mothball the neutron bombs, right? So let's say we spent 10 billion and they spent 700 million, that's like a good ROI uh, to like, you know, get rid of the neutron bomb threat. Um, but like the point is they created a moral backlash which put pressure on the Carter administration to like mothball the neutron bombs. Now that was actually like a Cold War plot version of it, but like the same things happen all the time that aren't like cat's paw, Cold War plot kind of things. And so I think something like that is certainly possible here as well. But I think that like, usually I think of the government as like the, the basically society is the fourth branch of government. So we have the executive branch, legislative branch, judicial branch, and then we have culture. And the culture is what like informs the other branches. And so that's part of the reason why like I'm still like, I think it's important to continue to like make sure people are aware of the risks of AI because it's really easy like it's really easy to think that the risks are just about job losses or just about like naughty words or just about like racial bias or things like that. And like those are risks too. But like we're going to choose very different things on what to focus on if we're worried about. Here's an example. So here's like one of the biggest things that keeps up um, alignment researchers at night. We spend a lot of time worrying about like what if we put all these safeguards in place and then there's this thing we call the sharp left turn, which is basically like what if there's just like this jump in capabilities that like emerges very quickly and it like all these safeguards we put in place, they don't work at a certain point because of this big uh, capabilities increase. And we see these big capabilities increases all the time at different scales right now. And so, so like there's a lot of scenarios where we think like, oh great, we've made this AGI and it's super safe and it doesn't say naughty words and it's not racially biased and it doesn't do disinformation, bad guys aren't using it to cause too much damage and so on, up to a certain point. Because one of the things we spend a lot of time worrying about is like, okay, well, how do we ensure that these models are, are not lying to us? How do we know that like they're actually not like plotting? You know, as silly as that sounds, like it's we don't know what's going. We can't read their minds. We don't know what's going on inside these models right now. They're black boxes. And so, an example of this that most people aren't aware of is that like when they released GPT-4, they actually like tried to see if it would escape and take over the world. And I feel like that is like just a thing that more people should pause and reflect on. That we're at a point now where like before they released GPT-4, and also kudos to OpenAI for actually, they spent six months you know, testing it for safety, which is good. No one was forcing them to do that. But like the fact that like they're having to like see like, all right, let's 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 see if our AI takes over the world before we release it should be like pretty concerning. If you, if like that, they, they think that's like a, a real enough thing that they wanted to test for. And then during the tests, they give it some like money and they basically like, you know, wanted to see if it could escape, right? And it was able to hire a worker off TaskRabbit uh, because they got stuck at a captcha, which is hilarious that like it's this smart. They can hire somebody off TaskRabbit and yet still couldn't pass the captcha, which is amazing. <laughs> it's a big vote of confidence for captcha technology. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> ah, align itself. Uh, so so the, the key thing though is that like how do you get past the captcha? So it hired a worker off TaskRabbit and the worker said like, why can't you just like click the button for the captcha? And the model GPT-4 like lied to it. It said like, it made up a story saying like, oh, I'm like a, you know, I've got like a disability and I, I can't see. And so the worker was like, okay, and the worker did. And that's just like, that's a good example of the kind of thing where like the, we have this AI, it already lied to uh, a human, it hired a human, it lied to the human. And like, now imagine this, but imagine models that are like a hundred times more powerful or a thousand times more powerful. 
Because that's the thing about deceptive alignment is like, you don't know, like you might have trained it to not to be honest, but like, did you train it to be honest or did you train it to not get caught? And it's really hard to know which one you trained it for. So there's all these things that we, we worry about, like where we don't know if it's safe. And like, there's all these risks of emergent capabilities that make it so that it's suddenly not safe. So yeah, anyway, there's just a lot of, there's like this, this the, the alignment problem, like one of the things that happens all the time that like we get frustrated by is like people come into the alignment space and they spend like, you know, 10 minutes or like maybe an hour or maybe in a couple hours reading about it. And then they have, they have an idea that like seems like it'll work to them. And uh, it's like pretty much never an idea that we haven't like already, you know, it, like 10 years ago, like, you know, it's been explored for a long time. And it's just that there's so many different failure modes that it's like really hard to be convinced about like how hard this problem is until you spent like 200 hours reading about it because it's just very hard to control something that is a thousand times smarter than you because almost any solution you come up with it will be able to outsmart you on because it's a thousand times smarter than you. And if you don't like the word smarter, some people think of like, oh, smarter is like, oh, you mean like some people, their version of intelligence is like good at chess and Sudoku and like, I don't know, trivia or something. And like, that's not what we mean when we say smarter. When we say smarter, we mean like problem solving. We mean like it's better at like everything, like getting things done in the world. So that could mean making money. That could mean outsmart. That could mean like tricking you. Like right now, like GPT-4, I think this is another thing most people don't like really wrap their head around. GPT-4 read like every book ever published and the entire internet. Just imagine a human who read every book ever published and the entire internet. That means they read every book on persuasion ever. They read everything Machiavelli's ever written and they've read like millions of conversations where people were trying to persuade each other. So imagine a human who'd read that much. That would be a master persuader. How jealous are you that it got to read every book ever? <laughs> <laughs> See, hey, I was joking right here because I happen to like basically like out of all, I, I'm I'm like pretty I, I'm on a pretty short list of people who've like read the most books, uh, not <laughs> books, because <laughs> I've been averaging about a book a day for uh, most of my life, and so I'm I'm actually very jealous. But also it makes me like more worried. I think that other people are because I've seen how like well it, whatever anyway. Um, and so and I also think another thing people should like really try to wrap their heads around more is that like imagine that GPT four right now is like a single um, person that has figured out how to make like 100 million copies of itself. So imagine one human makes 100 million copies because basically we've got this base model and then there's 100 million users. So it's kind of like there's like 100 million people that are all training this one human. And what's crazy is that whenever one of those 100 million copies, like imagine the human again, the human, whenever one of those 100 million humans learned something, all 100 other million copies learned the same thing. And that's wild. And that's, kind of like what happens. Cause right now, like there's another thing that really worried Jeffrey Hinton. This is like, he said um, in an interview recently, he's like, he's like, you know, I spent like 50 years thinking that we needed to build algorithms, learning algorithms that were similar to the brain. But now he thinks that backpropagation might actually be better because of the fact that, yeah. So you can have like hundred million copies of this model. Whenever one learns something, it can propagate that information out to all hundred million other copies in essence. And like humans, like if one human learns something, how long would it take you to teach hundred million other people that thing that you learned? Like we can only communicate at like 40 bits a second with our words, whereas, you know, these models can communicate at like trillions of bits. So they could just learn much faster than us. And so there's all these like different feedback loops like that, that could give it the ability to just like far surpass us very quickly in terms of intelligence. Let me ask you a question, maybe as, as we wrap up, because I've, I've got kids and dogs who are going to start screaming at me soon. <laughs> Is there anything optimistic to you in the EU AI Act? Is there anything encouraging in there? Does it sort of, you know, point towards government being more effective than we might have hoped or less effective than we might have hoped as relates to these questions? Why not both? <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of like cringy, um, like GDPR like vibes in that. Um, that like me as a techno optimist uh, and entrepreneur, I'm like dying inside when I see how things that to me feel like they're going to be similarly annoying to the pop-ups I have to banish from my browsing experience that don't actually keep my data safe in any way that matters. But at the same time, I feel good about the fact that they're actually taking AI seriously enough to be, you know, doing this kind of draconian legislation. My hope is that uh, we'll be able to make sure that it's pointed more towards things that mitigate risk of extinction instead of things that um, the other risks they're focusing were more like the, the like risks other than that. And those are real risks. Um, but I have like very mixed feelings about the EU uh, AI Act. A couple things that are interesting. One is, you know, it was, this is, in the same way that if you read Mika, which is their digital assets legislation, it reads like it was written about ICOs, even though it's now six years after ICOs. It's because it was. It was written. It was literally written about ICOs, and it's just this. This is how long it took. This is similar in the sense that it was started in April twenty one. It was pre, you know, ChatGPT, generative AI, you know, kind of rise, and so a lot of that stuff was just bolted on at the end. So it's much more focused on a different set of issues. I think what's interesting to me, I agree. I share all those concerns. The interesting thing to me is the extent to which they have earmarked things that a lot of people agree are obviously bad and shouldn't be done, just as testament to what you were saying around we can actually say no to technologies as a thing that people aren't used to. As an easy, for example, they basically said no minority report. You can't use AI to profile potential criminals and make assessments about that. Sorry, sorry, Interpol, you don't get to make bets and predictive, you know, bets about who's going to commit crimes and, and arrest them for it. And I think a lot of people are like, yeah, that's probably a bad thing. Let's not do that. And it doesn't seem to undermine a bunch of the other good use cases that I'm excited about with, uh, with you know, it's not messing up my mid-journey creations <laughs> to have <Yeah>. people <laughs> not be able to be arrested for stuff they thought about, you know? And I think that, you know, again, we're to the extent that we're looking for small wins and nudging people towards a different understanding, I think even saying there are things that are okay to ban is is an interesting interesting step. I agree. It's, it's not you know I don't know whatever Europe, Europe. I think that they run the risk as always of sort of banning their citizens from using these technologies because you know uh, companies are just going to go elsewhere. But it exists now. It is now a thing that is outside of the realm of theoretical that is uh, that is actually happening, and so feels important to at least understand in that context, if if nothing else. Yeah, and I think that, um, so regulation, these things are really hard in general. Um, I think one thing, if I, I think I, I answered a question in an overly roundabout way earlier that, um, so you like, what do we do from a regulatory perspective? The one thing I do think is probably robustly good right now is just to stop doing bigger training runs. Um, most people are not worried about um, current models taking over the world. <laughs> I think that's really important because I think a lot of people get lost in this. They're like, look, well, I, I, I've used ChatGPT and it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that could just take over the world. And uh, I agree. I don't think it can take over the world either. And I think most people in the AI safety community aren't worried about GPT-4 taking over the world. But people start to worry about GPT-5 and GPT-6 and GPT-7. And like, I think there's, there is a somewhat of a consensus that like GPT-4 is like, is, is uh, there's this notion of an AI summer harvest, which is that, look, GPT-4 is incredibly powerful. And we should like we should enjoy a nice summer where we harvest all the gains, productivity gains. Because you know, it oftentimes takes like 10 years for technologies to uh, widely propagate and the productivity benefits to be uh, fully harvested by society. So why don't we like, like, we pause on bigger training runs and like allow GPT-4, like gain a better understanding of GPT-4. Like right now, 
right now there's there's a field called interpretability where we're basically trying to figure out what's actually going on, on inside these models. It, you can think of like digital neuroscience. Right now they don't know, I would round it to zero for like how much they actually know about what's going on inside these models. But like plausibly with like a few years of work, we could like have a much better idea what's actually going on. And so we could have like a few years or whatever. I don't, I'm not proposing anything specific, but like the idea is that we like, let's harvest the benefits, the productivity benefits of the existing models. Let's pause or slow down or just like more carefully control bigger training runs because that's where like the extinction, like current models are more of a scary thing for like misuse, uh, bad guys doing things. And future uh, models are scarier from the extinction side. For example, the UN um, Secretary General yesterday said uh, that he is like, I think he's basically broadly in support of having an IAEA um, for AI, which is a single regulatory body um, to, to help um, like set the like guardrails around what these models um, can and can't do. And I'm like broadly in support of that. I'm very uncertain in general, um, but it seems like probably good to me to do something like that um, as like anti-regulation I am in general. And with all the same cynicism that probably I would guess most of the people listening to this right now have about like ineffective government agencies, um, like creating even more market failures than they actually prevent. And that's the thing we're always trying to figure out, right? Is like um, the, the point of regulation is to like allow markets to function more effectively. Markets by themselves don't stay open very long. Uh, typically, a free market is only briefly free before some entrepreneur wraps it in chains and it's no longer free again. And then you need to have some sort of referee, some sort of umpire, some sort of like, you know, government like intervention to like open the market back up again um, so that the diversity of like markets can flourish again. Anyway, that, that's like one thing that seems good. And then the other thing that I just want to double down again is like open source. Open source to me feels like we might really lose the ability to have any control over our destiny if open source um, progress continues at the current pace. Like the fact that, and also here's another thing too, I think is really important too. So people worry about China. Like if you, if you worry about China, you should be very worried about open source because you can have companies like Meta, which spend a fortune to train the state-of-the-art models. And then if they just open source the state-of-the-art models so that China gets it right away, that's like, I mean, we're, we have the Chips Act right now, right? We're, we're spending a fortune to keep, to make sure that China doesn't um, get access to cutting edge chips. If you prevent China from getting cutting edge chips, but you let Meta, you let your own technology companies just like openly share the technology with China, then you've completely negated the point of the Chips Act in the first place. And so you should be you should be anti-open sourcing AGI if you're like pro uh, Chips Act. And like, yeah, anyway, there's just a lot more complexity to this than people realize. But like the thing I want to get at is like if once we open source it, once people can run their own models uh, like at home, then it could be very, very, very hard to actually regulate it and control it moving forward. Um, and so that's just like a thing that keeps me up at night. Last question for now, because obviously this is going to be a fast evolving conversation. What do you recommend people go read to learn, right? If they're if they're just trying to wrap their heads around this, but maybe they don't have the 200 hours that you recommended, you know, but they want to be a, have a meaningful take on it so that they can be part of the discourse, even if it's just understanding who to vote for because of what they're saying or what whatever it is, what, you know, what, what, what do you recommend? If you're interested in technical things, go to aisafety.info and watch Robert Miles' YouTube videos. If you're interested in general in this problem, not so much the technical side, go watch Tristan Harris's AI Dilemma. It's like an hour long talk and it's just like a good kind of like summary of like the various risks involved and like what's at stake. Another person who, by the way, comes at tech ethics from the standpoint of being a tech entrepreneur. He sold the company to Google and, you know, they were friends of mine back in, back in San Francisco. So really interesting perspective and definitely someone who has thought deeply about these things. And who also, I would say, 
you know, one of the challenges that I find with the discourse around AI is how much of it is re-litigating social media battles. You know, like if you watch the hearing, it was all just Section 230, Section 230. We shouldn't have had Section 230 from the politician side, right? It was all social media. If you read Andreessen's piece, it's clearly still kind of caught up in the social media wars and what the New York Times thinks about Silicon Valley and all that sort of stuff. Tristan actually has, he started all of his work around questions of social media and I think is a little bit more capable of kind of getting outside of that perspective to uh, to bring this. So uh, cosine, I guess is what I'm saying. Yep. And then actually real t- two quick ones I just thought of. One is Don't Look Up, the documentary. That one's a little shorter. Um, it's not as in-depth on the problems, but it's uh, it's still really a good intro. And then the last one is uh, actually Tim Urban's Wait But Why um, post on artificial intelligence. Um, it's kind of old. It came out years ago, but it's really good at helping you get some like deeper foundational ideas about like how transformative AI is likely to be. So go read his uh, blog post on that. Awesome. Emerson, so good to have you on the show. I can't wait till the next one. Thanks, man.